Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce today's lunchtime talk, Introduction to Intrigue, James Ensel by Luke Toymans, by our senior curator, Adrian Locke. Adrian Locke is senior curator at the Royal Academy of Arts, and he joined in 2001 and has co-curated numerous exhibitions in the main galleries and the Sackler galleries over the intervening 14 years. This includes Anish Kapoor, Mexico, a revolution in art and radical geometry, and of course, last year's incredible survey of Ai Weiwei's work. Adrian will be introducing us to Intrigue, James Ensel by Luke Toymans, examining the life and work of this truly original artist. This exhibition has been curated by the contemporary Belgian artist, Luke Toymans, with the intention of taking a new look at this enigmatic figure who rejected academic training and cultivated his own individual style in the face of a lot of hostile criticism. Adrian will present an overview of Ensor's life, focusing on key moments in his career while reflecting on this unique collaboration between two of Belgium's most fascinating artists. And without further ado, I'll pass on to Adrian. Thank you very much. Hello, welcome to everybody. Thank you uh, for coming. And uh, for those of you who haven't seen the exhibition, I hope you'll take the opportunity, perhaps after this talk, to go upstairs and feast on the work of James Ensor and others. So this is really just going to be a, a, an overview of the exhibition and a little bit of the story behind the show and what it's been like working with Luke on this exhibition. Some of you may already know the work of Luke Toymans, others, he may be a new name to you. And funnily enough, one of the things that we are discovering is that how little known um, James Ensor is uh, in the UK. Um, and the last major exhibition of his work was uh, in 1997 at the Barbican. Many of you may have seen that show, Theatre of Masks. So this is really the first opportunity in 20 years we've had to have a monographic show. Um, and it is a monographic show with a slight twist because, um, as Sarah said, it has been curated by Luke Toymans. Uh, and so we are actually, for the first time uh, in the history of the Royal Academy, we've invited a living artist to curate the work of a predecessor, if you like, a, a dead artist. Um, and we've never done it before, and it's been quite a journey, quite a, an interesting, and I think very uh, fulfilling experiment. Uh, and so the exhibition itself uh, is uh, perhaps a little less conventional than the sort of monographic shows you've probably become used to seeing here at the RA. For those of you who don't know the work of Luke, this is a painting of his from 2004, which you will actually see upstairs in the exhibition. It's called Gilles de Bench, and as always with uh, Luke's paintings, they're slightly difficult to read at first glance, a little bit surprising, a little bit kind of beguiling, um, and always with these very washed-out tones. And the scale of his painting often surprises people too. This work is itself um, about six foot in height. The exhibition came about many years ago, in fact, when we first started talking to the Royal Museum of Fine Arts in Antwerp about our Rubens exhibition, which I'm sure many of you saw uh, a year or so ago. Um, and uh, at that point, we were entering into collaboration with them. We knew the museum was going to be closed. They've been undergoing substantial renovation works. In fact, the museum itself will be will have been closed for the best part of a decade before it reopens in, I think, early 2019. And while I was there several years ago, um, I happened to be shown around the museum and was led into the Ensor Gallery and was very intrigued by the work that I saw and um, said, well, you know, if the museum is going to be closed, maybe this would be a great opportunity for us to um, have an Ensor exhibition in London building on the strength of your collection. At that point, in fact, neither I or Luke knew that the Royal Museum of Fine Arts in Antwerp has the best collection of uh, Ensor paintings anywhere. Uh, and that was largely historically due to the fact that um, he was widely collected in Antwerp uh, when he was still alive. Um, so the exhibition that we've done is in fact a collaboration with the museum in Antwerp, um, whose collaboration has been fundamental to bringing this exhibition together. So back to Luke, you're wondering probably what this figure is. 
Um, and this, I think, is sort of symptomatic in some ways of the way that Luke has approached the exhibition. It's rather unconventional and rather surprising in some ways. I imagine if we had done uh, an exhibition of James Ensor without Luke, we would have done a straight chrono chronological survey of his work, um, taking you from the beginnings right through his career towards the end. And he had a very long life. He was born in 1860 and died in 1949 and painted uh, for over um, 70 years of that life. But of course, inviting uh, a living contemporary artist, and uh, Luke is, you know, is uh, highly regarded uh, internationally, uh, one of the best uh, painters working currently, uh, much in demand. So of course, we were delighted that he had the time and energy to focus on this exhibition. Um, and as I said, there are some twists and turns in the exhibition that you might not expect, and one of them is this finding the work of uh, Luke in the exhibition. Uh, this is a figure, a carnival figure, from a town called Bench, hence the name Gilles, uh, literally means clown. The uh, Bench just means of, of Bench, of the town, which is a, a French-speaking or Walloon community um, to the west of Brussels, where they have this very famous carnival. But if you didn't happen to know that they wore these ostrich feather headdresses and these white costumes um, in the afternoon of uh, the Mardi Gras or Shrove Tuesday celebrations, you'd be a bit probably perplexed by this painting. And typical of Luke's work, um, it's taken um, from a photograph. Um, he works, his paintings are derived from photographs either that he's taken, he's found or come across, um, or still film stills. This is actually um, one of the Polaroids that he took in the museum in Bench, which is dedicated to carnival and masks. So I think when we, when we set out on this road with Luke, uh, we knew that we were going to be doing something a little bit different. Uh, and uh, he, from the outset, when I first approached him about doing this exhibition, uh, the one thing that he said was, uh, we must include this work by uh, Guillaume Bill, who's a, an old friend of mine. They've known each other for the best part of 30 years. Like Luke, is an artist who um, lives and works in Antwerp. Um, and this is a contemporary work, which some of you will see when you go into the gallery. It's a moving film. Uh, it's about three minutes long. Um, and it purports to show various um, uh, moving footage of James... Uh, Ensor, uh, when he's around about 60 years old, promenading in uh, Ostend, um, taking a glass of wine in a cafe and sitting on the beach with his friends. This figure here is supposedly uh, James Ensor. It's actually um, an antique dealer from Antwerp who dresses like this and actually happens to look like Ensor. Whether he modelled himself on Ensor, nobody really knows. Um, but the whole thing is a spoof. It's a kind of fake film. Um, and uh, right at the beginning, um, Luke said, we have to have this film. It's terribly funny. Um, it's sort of very typical of Belgian sense of humor um, and it is totally kind of baffling and misleading to people. And it has this wonderful kind of old feel about it, like an old found footage. A bit like the films that we've shown here before of Wenra and Degas in their prime uh, towards the end of their lives. I mean, seriously, back to Ensor. This is an artist that uh, Luke has known, as you would imagine, being a Flemish artist himself. Um, as I said, Luke um, is from Antwerp, and uh, James Ensor was born in 1860 in Ostend, um, and uh, from a very young age showed a precocious talent. He painted this uh, rather beautiful um, small oil on cardboard um, scene of a bathing hut when he was 16. And at this point, he was uh, enrolled in the local Academy of uh, Fine Arts in Ostend. Just a little bit of background. Belgium itself gained independence from Holland in 1830. So when Ensor was born, Belgium was still a fairly young, uh, independent country. The first king was Leopold I, and his son, Leopold II, decided that they wanted to uh, make Ostend into um, the queen, as it's now known, the queen of, of Belgian beaches. They wanted to make it into a resort, uh, and they wanted um, to 
invest in the town and encourage people to travel there. So they set about uh, building a casino, there's a royal villa, there was a five-star hotel, uh, a grand promenade. They spent a lot of money and invested a lot of money into making Ostend a kind of destination in its own right, a bit, if you like, competing against the towns in the south of France or Biarritz, somewhere like that. And Ensor, as he was growing up, witnessed this seismic change that was taking place in Ostend. So from what was a, an important but not a big uh, fishing port, it suddenly became this rather grand, elegant um, town. Um, it had connections to Dover and so was very popular with English tourists. And Ensor himself um, was uh, of English descent. His father, um, despite being born in Brussels, was an Englishman also called James Ensor, was an engineer, and uh, married into a family from Ostend um, who ran a number of uh, curio shops or souvenir shops, if you want. Um, and in these shops, they sold a whole range of uh, odd and wonderful things, things from around the world. A lot of uh, what was then known as chinoiserie, so uh, objects from the East, Chinese, Japanese. They sold masks because of course Ostend also had a carnival-like bench we saw earlier. Uh, they sold souvenirs from the seaside, um, dried fish and starfish and uh, seashells and such like. And they had this uh, shop, and uh, which was originally run by the grandmother, um, and it had a monkey and a parrot and cats and various other live animals in it too. So it was a fairly exotic um, bazaar, if you like, and something that clearly had an influence on Ensor, as we'll see as we go through um, the slideshow. I should also say that while they were um, developing Ostend, um, they uncovered in various parts um, mass graves. Uh, and so lots of bones and skeletons and skulls were being uh, taken out. In fact, I think some of them appeared in sand dunes as well, um, but also taken out of construction sites. And obviously, um, if you think that that coastline of Belgium was basically all sand dunes, uh, something that Ensor painted very much so when he was younger. Um, all those sand dunes gradually disappeared to make way for these developments. And so they were finding all these bones that came from mass graves when uh, Ostend was under siege at, right at the beginning of the 17th century um, when uh, the Dutch were trying to um, gain independence from Spanish rule. So he had this kind of background of witnessing this extraordinary change that was taking place in the city he had this rather quirky family with the English father who unfortunately was not particularly successful uh, at his line of work and became an alcoholic. Um, but despite that, remained um, Ensor's greatest kind of supporter um, and uh, advocate. And also the family business. With, so there was a lot, of, lot going on in his uh, imagination. So at 16, he was in the academy in Ostend. And at 17, he... Um, this is a, a, a rather beautiful self-portrait from when he's 19 um, years old. Uh, at 17, he uh, left Ostend to go and study in Brussels at the Royal uh, Fine Arts Academy there. Um, and the one thing that makes Ensor quite kind of enigmatic in many ways is that he lived his entire life, apart from these three years that he was studying in Brussels, which, for those of you who know um, Belgium will know it's not a huge distance between Ostend and uh, Brussels anyway, and they were linked by a railway line, obviously, to bring people to the seaside. Um, uh, so he lived his entire life in Ostend, which is a rather interesting town. It's a rather beautiful town, has a fabulous beach, um, and it has this um, dual personality in many ways, uh, which is something that Luke talks about, and for those of you who get hold of the catalogue and uh, read a little bit more about Ensor and also Luke's feelings, you'll see that he talks about this kind of dual existence of Ostend, which apparently is quite well known uh, in Belgium in that it's incredibly vibrant and joyful and wonderful in the summer, but in the winter when the crowds have disappeared and everyone's gone back home, it sort of returns into a fairly um, insular town um, beset by the sort of weather you'd imagine uh, the, of a town that's on the north coast, uh, on the North Sea, where it meets the English Channel. Damp, wet, cold, windy, uh, and not very pleasant. Uh, so it has um, 
this experience that Luke talks about, Ensor enduring throughout his entire life, living right on the edge, living right next to the sea, and having this kind of dual existence there. He was a very talented um, draftsman, uh, and you'll see in the exhibition that we've included a large number of drawings in the exhibition uh, to show this. So we wanted to show him as a painter, but also as a printmaker and a draftsman, and he was acclaimed in all three areas. A rather sensitive portrait. And one of the themes about Ensor also that you'll see in the exhibition and in other works that he did is this sort of self-obsession. Uh, from a very early age, he was painting representations of himself. Um, and a lot of people um, align this to the fact that he had a lot of confidence in his ability. He never doubted that he was a good artist. Uh, in fact, probably believed he was a great artist. But he also saw himself in this kind of line of great uh, Flemish uh, artists, including uh, Rembrandt and um, Rubens in particular. So he kind of had this sense of where his position was. And throughout his career, he's capturing himself uh, in self-portraits, rather like Rembrandt and Rubens did as well. His experiences in uh, Brussels were pretty bruising. Um, he didn't get on with the tutors. He thought they were far too conventional uh, and they thought he was far too quirky and uncontrollable. Um, he was subject to severe criticism by the tutors. Uh, he loathed uh, the three years he spent there. Um, and at the end of it was quite happy to leave. He made some important uh, friendships when he was in um, Brussels, but not at the academy and certainly not with his tutors. And he had a lifelong battle really um, with art critic, well lifelong I say, the first 40 years of his life. Uh, so when he was 16, 34 years, um, sorry my maths is a bit wrong, 24 years of struggling against uh, a, a criticism and um, a lot of people were very negative about what he was doing. His works were often rejected by the salons. Um, and he stuck to his guns. He refused to kind of conform and carried on painting as he wanted to. Uh, and so he creates uh, this rather significant body of work, and in particular, before uh, 1900, so before he's 40, he has painted a, a huge amount of work, and many people consider this to be the defining kind of works of his career, that after he was 40, there wasn't really anything more for him to do uh, in terms of being original and um, in terms of the subject matter. So what he did what other artists have done before him, uh, in particular Edvard Munch in later life, he started reworking or returning to earlier paintings and re remaking them or reinventing them and repainting them. But this is a, a painting from uh, his mid-twenties. And in fact, the first gallery is really paintings uh, of his from the... Uh, the early part of his career, so before he's 30. Um, and this was the room, uh, the, the view he had from the room uh, that he occupied in his parents' house, which was in the attic. Um, and I'm sure you're probably familiar with those tall um, kind of townhouses uh, in that part of Belgium and in Holland also, um, where the living rooms are up on the first floor. His um, uh, room was in the attic, which he also used as a studio, and this was the view he had of the sea, something that really fascinated him, clearly. Uh, and this wonderful painting, uh, I think, also demonstrates his real interest in um, Turner and the sense of that the sky is the dominant feature of the painting, uh, and in fact, in the foreground, the rooftops, which are really beautifully painted, actually, are kind of... Um, and like in many of his uh, paintings, that you, they slowly reveal themselves because your first view is dominated by this dramatic sky and the clouds, uh, the dark clouds uh, assembling. A very confident and large painting. And I think one of the really interesting things, particularly at the moment with abstract expressionism on downstairs in the main galleries, for, I'm sure most of you have seen that show as well, there is this kind of, these areas that you look at these, uh, the way that he's painted, the palette that he's using, I'm afraid this is perhaps not quite as good a picture as it might be compared to the original. And you look at Philip Guston's work and there's huge, I think, similarities. And one of the things that's often spoken about with Ensor uh, is that he is, you know, 
classically one of these kind of artists' artists. So a lot of artists have been very familiar with his work. A lot of artists have engaged uh, and looked at um, and responded to his work. And yet he remains, well, particularly in the UK, uh, very uh, little known. In France and Germany, uh, and also in the United States, he has a higher profile. Despite um, having uh, English citizenship, there are only two paintings here in public collections, one at Tate and one at the Fitzwilliam in Cambridge. So clearly he was not collected here in the UK. And he did have two shows uh, while he was still alive in 1936 at the Leicester Galleries in London and then a major retrospective at Tate in 1946. So just going back to those uh, immediate post-academy uh, days, uh, this is when he's painted when he's 20. It's a painting that's relatively recently resurfaced. It was bought at a provincial uh, auction uh, in Belgium by Ronnie van der Velde, who's a, a, a gallerist, but also a collector. Uh, and there's this rather wonderful uh, view of his uh, parents' living room. That's his uh, sister standing in the room, Mitch. Um, and uh, some people uh, have referred to this as the first impressionistic painting in Belgium. Um, but you could see uh, the, the, the lightness of the way that he approaches the work. And the, the, I think what's really interesting for me is the fact that he often, those early paintings are about exteriors, about seascapes, beach, beach scenes. Uh, and then he moves into the interior, perhaps as a consequence of his uh, studying in Brussels. Uh, but often the paintings are dominated by these shafts of light, the kind of windows that are on the other side of the room. It's almost as if he w wishes to be outside, outside of the kind of claustrophobic and rather stuffy environment uh, indoors. And the kind of, uh, I think that goes hand in hand with his uh, slight rebelliousness about the uh, bourgeois, uh, bourgeois lifestyle in Belgium at the time. Uh, a year later, he paints this uh, scene, which is exactly the same room, but from a different angle. You'll notice the fireplace and the uh, vases or paraffin lamps on the fireplace. Uh, they're still there with the clock as well. His mother and his sister taking uh, coffee or tea. Uh, again, you have this kind of little window, uh, uh, the element of light. And it presents the in inside as being, I think, quite stifling, quite claustrophobic and rather unpleasant. The carpet uh, is almost indistinguishable from the um, tablecloth and it all feels rather murky and rather un um, unappealing, a bit swamp-like, um, which is a far cry from what the Impressionists were doing, obviously, in France at the time where everything was about light and colour and joyfulness. And perhaps that's why people found Ensor quite so difficult, because he was quite contraire. Um, but uh, there he is in his studio uh, in the attic. And you'll notice uh, that he has uh, a skull uh, on the top of his easel. Uh, there are some rather fun photographs of him cavorting around in the dunes with his friend Theodore Rousseau when they're hitting each other with bones, presumably that they've found in the sand. Um, and what's nice about this painting, I think, uh, sorry, this photograph, um, is that it becomes a, a source for a painting, which I'll show you in just a second. Um, and it demonstrates that Ensor uh, was looking at and using photography as a kind of tool um, for his painting. Uh, and also has this kind of deep fascination with himself uh, and less perhaps as uh, a, a kind of uh, psychological um, uh, attempt to understand himself, more as a kind of celebration of, of him perhaps. But there are a number of little things in the paint. You can see some masks on the floor. Um, I think uh, this painting here is uh, masks, uh, two skeletons fighting over pickled herring is in the exhibition. This is a painting called um, The Baths of Ostend, also in the exhibition. This painting here, I think, is of the Maria Kirk. This is the church where he was buried um, after he died and is part of, if you go to Ostend, it's the only remaining part of the Belgian coastline that has sand dunes. And he was one of the residents in Ostend who petitioned to save this particular neighborhood. Um, and so he was buried there. And in 2006, Louise Bourgeois, with her big maman sculpture, you know, the huge 
bronze spider. She was a big fan of ensors, apparently, and she placed that right over his tomb in the graveyard. If you ever get the chance to Google an image, it's rather fantastic. This giant spider over this little tomb. And it's rather funny because he hated spiders as well. He had a pathological fear of them. So, um, but so bear in mind this um, photograph, lovely sepia photograph. And here it emerges, uh, easier to see the Maria Kirk painting there, the uh, skeletons fighting over the pickled herring, the bars of Ostend a little harder to see. And he's added this, which is a conch shell, which appears in a painting in the exhibition, as does the top hat. So he's sort of embellished the painting. But this is something that, that is classic uh, Ensor. Um, I, well, it tells us a number of things. First of all, that um, he continued, oh, this, this painting also, sorry, the uh, Bad Cooks, which we'll see in a minute, uh, is also in the exhibition. So in many ways, this, this one painting brings together a number of strands rather nicely for us um, and is in the Royal Museum of Fine Arts in Antwerp. Um, he's embellished it, and, and most um, tellingly, I think, he's also replaced his own head um, with um, a skull. Now, uh, this was added later. So the painting originally has his normal face, beard, etc., underneath. Um, and it tells us a number of things. First of all, that he kept his works. He wasn't selling very well at this point in his career, so he was keeping his works. In fact, in, even in 1893, he offered to sell an entire, the entire contents of his studio and the studio itself um, in desperation because he was not selling at all um, and was wanting to be, obviously, as you would imagine, successful. Um, but he also would take these paintings that were hanging on the walls and often rework them. And this is an example of him reworking. So he then changed his head for a skull. And I think rather uh, amusingly, the skull that's perched on the top of his easel now has these two eyeballs that are glaring down at him, um, either in kind of bemusement or amusement, I'm not quite sure. Um, but some people have likened uh, the fact that uh, Ensor brought, started bringing in skulls and um, other skeletons into his work post the death of his father in 1887. In fact, his maternal grandmother also died that year. His father, as I said, was um, his greatest kind of supporter. Uh, his mother wasn't quite so uh, eager for her son to be an artist. Um, but his father was adamant that this is the path that he should continue to pursue, that he would support him. But as I mentioned, his father was an alcoholic, and in April that year he was found extremely badly uh, beaten up, uh, lying in the streets after a, a, a drinking binge, and died a few days later as a consequence of that uh, beating. And I, there, is, there are letters in which um, Ensor talks about you know, the, the kind of... You know, fairly graphic detail of the kind of extent of his injuries. Pretty unpleasant and certainly something that would have profoundly shaken him. And so there is this conjecture that it was only after his maternal grandmother and father died that these skulls and bones start entering into his work. He's already been painting masks for some time. I think his first mask painting is in 1886. And as we'll see, uh, masks become another feature of his works. You can see some discarded masks on the floor. Um, but these, these are real, you know, these skulls. And presumably these are skulls that he just picked up um, either from uh, dealers or, or actually found, found them. Uh, this is another example. Uh, this is taken again from a photograph, a rather wonderful photograph of him standing leaning against this uh, window. Uh, which he then changes again. This time the skull, you can see, has the hair. He's changed um, his face uh, again for the skull. And this is interesting because in uh, 1886, he engages with printmaking for the first time and takes up etching and dry point. Um, so uh, the subtle difference between um, etching being that you use acid to, to uh, define the marks in the plate and dry point when you use a needle to scratch out. So they have slightly different textural kind of um, consequences. Uh, and he, he, he became pretty accomplished, actually, uh, as an engraver and was very ambitious with it, too, uh, and uh, wrote that he believed that etching um, and printmaking 
was a, a much better way to preserve his legacy than painting, because he felt that painting could deteriorate, it could be affected by conservation, uh, conservators later, and the, the kind of feel and, and um, content of the painting altered in a way that uh, works on paper uh, would not be affected. Strange argument, you might say. Um, but I, I suspect also that he was conscious of the fact that you can produce multiples of works on paper, and this was a way of making money. Uh, it didn't turn out quite the way he planned. He didn't sell so many of the uh, etchings either, but he produced something like 133 different etchings, and later on also some lithographs. Um, and uh, the, what he did was he used to print them on demand, uh, so if somebody came along and said they wanted a copy of a particular uh, engraving, then he would uh, print it and s give it to them, sometimes um, hand-colouring it um, also. So you do see uh, different uh, types and different um, quality of prints. Uh, and it was really only after 1900 that he started selling them in any useful kind of number. But as a consequence, none of them have any addition numbers. Nobody knows how big the print runs were of these um, etchings. Um, but they were, interestingly enough, the first thing that entered into public collections. In fact, the uh, Cooperstick cabinet in Dresden was the first public museum to buy any of Ensor's work, followed by the museum uh, in Brussels. And then later, the, not much later, in the 1890s, the Albertina uh, in Vienna bought 100 of his etchings. So his kind of career was uh, interestingly, you know, the, the etchings were more valued earlier than the paintings. As a, his first painting um, entered a public collection, um, I think, in the mid-1890s. Um, One of the most celebrated of all of his self-portraits is a uh, self-portrait with a flowered hat. Uh, and is uh, typical uh, of Ensor in many ways, uh, the enigmatic artist that he is. Um, uh, he painted the face and the pose. Uh, they were inspired by a self-portrait by Rubens, so very consciously kind of mimicking the great master, the great Flemish master. Um, and five years later, Ensor, um, after he finished the portrait, that is, Ensor traveled to Paris and he very rarely left Belgium. Um, there is, um, he, he came to London once on a four-day visit. Uh, a lot of people say specifically to look at Turner, uh, who incidentally also painted an Ostend, obviously before um, Ensor was born. But rather nice symmetry there. Uh, he went to The Hague, I think, I believe once, and he went to Paris a couple of times. Uh, and when he went to the Louvre, he came across a painting uh, also by Rubens of his second wife with two of her children. And in this portrait, um, she is wearing this hat. So he came back five years after he painted this and added the hat and all these rather elaborate twirls to his moustache as well. So there is this rather playful side to him, and it's not quite certain whether he's sort of poking fun at the establishment or himself or the rarefied atmosphere of artists and salons at the time. But one of the things that he was instrumental in doing was setting up, um, he was one of the founding members of the Group of 20, which uh, formed in the mid-1880s and lasted about 10 years. Uh, and there was 11 Belgian artists who came together and then invited another nine, hence the name The Twenty, um, to uh, basically promote uh, emerging uh, artists in Belgium at the time, a lot of whom were finding it very difficult to get their work accepted in the traditional salons. Um, but it was never a particularly easy uh, or um, smooth uh, relationship with the organisation. Um, partly because in order to raise their profile, they had long uh, and rather um, difficult discussions about whether or not to invite uh, other artists to, to show alongside them to raise the profile of the exhibition as a whole. The first artist they wanted to include was Whistler. Um, Ensor vetoed um, that. Uh, so the first salon was, the first time they showed as the group of 20 was the Belgian artists. The second year they started inviting uh, in particular French established artists. So he won the first battle but lost the war. Uh, and this continued to kind of irritate him immensely, especially when they reject, started rejecting some of his own work too. Um, so, you know, he um, no doubt muttered away under his breath about how unfair and unjust it all was.
What are the other striking things about him? We've talked about his uh, talent as a draftsman. He also believed that um, drawing should be, um, you should be able to create drawings as um, works in their own right, that you would be able to put and hang in an exhibition as you would a painting. And this was something that was largely frowned on at the time, and that paint, the drawing was seen as a different discipline, usually one associated with the preliminary sketches and ideas before you created the, the painting itself. Uh, this is an example of one of those drawings. Uh, it's called, uh, this, this, that's the wrong title, I'm afraid. Uh, it's actually called uh, Pest Here, Pest There, Pest Everywhere, as in Plague. Um, there is another one called Strike, which you will see upstairs too. Um, and as you can see, it's highly finished, it's, it's colored, um, and it's, it's drawn. The, uh, these four uh, subjects here are all friends of of Ensor's. This is, um, again, taken from a photograph of all four of them sitting in a cafe. He's transposed them to sitting on a bench on the promenade. Uh, you can see the sea behind and these wonderful kind of Japanese-influenced clouds uh, building up over the sea. And then these kind of down and outs here. Um, obviously, one is the woman with the baby in her arms, a rather elderly-looking baby, it has to be said. Uh, and then these two rather unsavory characters here. And uh, there's a lot of kind of, you know, you can see there's a, there's a, looks like some excrement giving off some powerful aromas as well under the bench. Um, so he has that kind of um, sense of humor as well, you could say, uh, that Bosch and Bruegel had before him. Um, and the, the, there's an ambiguity about this drawing in the sense that who actually is the pest? Is it the, 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 the bourgeois? Uh, people sitting here who refuse to engage with the lower tiers of society, the proletariats in, um, in Belgium, or is it the down and outs who are struggling to find uh, their way uh, and want um, more equitable society? And it's interesting at the time that the Socialist Party in Belgium was becoming more prevalent and there were lots of discussions uh, about how um, things might change politically in the country at the time. But this is very typical, lots of kind of bad aromas and other things that he likes to, and we'll see some of those. He, uh, this is another drawing from a private collection here in London, uh, one of only three works in the exhibition that has not come from a Belgian institution or lender. Um, so it's a very, Bel it's a very densely Belgian exhibition. Um, this is called The Revelatory Heart, and it, it gives us some idea of the kind of um, sources that Ensor was also engaging with. This is, comes from a short story by Edgar Allan Poe, and there is also, excuse me, an etching upstairs called Hop Frog's Revenge, which is also another Edgar Allan short story, Edgar Allan Poe short story. This is about this man um, who uh, apparently has the kind of eagle eye. As you can see the shaft darting across the room to this intruder. Uh, and there's a whole story uh, um, revolves around this man here murdering this man and burying him under the floorboards and being then obsessed by the sound. He kind of, in his head, he can hear the sound of this man's heart beating under the floor. So there's this kind of darkness also to Ensor, which is really rather, uh, I think, quite wonderful um, and quite sinister. Uh, and it's something that comes out in other work. This is perhaps his most famous, well, I would say perhaps, it is his most famous still life. He did a number of still lives, chinoiserie, uh, and in, in particular, but this is this uh, painting called The Skate, uh, with this rather flabby, rather unattractive looking fish um, that's just been dumped. Uh, I mean, it looks like the, I don't know, does it, I mean, would you go to this stall to buy your fish? I'm not sure I would. These fish are kind of falling out of the basket. There's these sardines or herrings here. There's the volute shell. Remember, we saw that on the floor of his attic studio with this kind of rather, uh, well, as the curator in Antwerp says, this very erotic kind of undertone to this picture. And also this forlorn face uh, of the skate. It's all rather kind of unsettling and unnerving. Beautifully painted, beautifully painted. Um, and then we get into the classic kind of uh, territory of Ensor. He's been referred to many times as the painter of masks. Uh, and of course, we've tried to show that there are other sides to him uh, in the exhibition, but you can't get away from the fact that 
the kind of carnival images are something that he returns to time and time again. Uh, this is called The Astonishment of the Mask, Roos. Nobody really knows what Roos means. Uh, it could be a derogatory term, but it's never been quite settled on. Um, but certainly what you have uh, are these uh, figures, uh, mostly wearing masks here. Then this person who could or could not be wearing a mask, it's a bit difficult to tell. Uh, a lot of paraphernalia from Carnival. Um, so the empty bottle, of course, very important. A lot of drinking going on during Carnival. Musical instruments and these costumes. Lovely uh, Japanese or Chinese silk hanging here. And then this dominant character with the parasol. Uh, and one of the things that I think Luke finds particularly kind of um, exhilarating about the work of uh, Ensor, and, and lots of people do, is the ambiguity of what you're looking at. Um, because, of course, when you don a, a mask during Carnival and the uh, fancy dress that goes with it, I mean, this is the dress of a woman, but it could be a man wearing that, we don't know, then you assume a very different personality and you actually deliberately try uh, and mislead people and confuse them about your identity. And one of the great, apparently, um, fun things of the carnival in Ostend was that you would go into a bar in your fancy dress and mask, and if people couldn't identify you, they had to buy you a drink. So this was something, obviously, that led to a lot of kind of um, fun and games. But I think the interesting thing about Ensor is that, that, that these are never very kind of joyful paintings. They're always rather slightly mysterious and unnerving. And you never quite know what's happened uh, or what, in fact, is going to happen next. Um, and rather than being playful and fun, I think they can be uh, seen as rather sinister, especially when you see a group of individuals like this. Uh, and, and the title of the work, The Intrigue, is obviously what's given the exhibition its name, it's uh, without doubt Ensor's greatest painting of uh, Carnival, uh, and for many people his greatest painting uh, full stop. Uh, there is um, a, a huge painting, for those of you who find yourselves in Los Angeles with time on your hands, you can go to the Getty Museum and see uh, his largest single work called The Entry of Christ into Brussels, which was bought by the Getty in 1988. Uh, all very clandestinely uh, and whisked out of Switzerland um, and uh, reappearing in California, much to the disgust of the Belgian museums and uh, government, in fact, at the time. Um, but this is classic Ensor. There's this group of characters. Uh, they, they're sort of... Uh, the landscape format of the painting was something that um, Luke talks about seeing when he was... Um, 15 years old when he first saw this painting and made a lasting impression on him. This group of revelers uh, are, are sort of looming. They're coming down the street towards you. You're feeling slightly kind of boxed in. You're feeling slightly kind of uncertain as to what they're up to, uh, where they've been and what kind of state they're in. Um, and it's frankly, I mean, if I saw a group of people coming down the dark street in Ostend like that, I'd probably turn around and walk the other way. Um, <laughs> But they've all got these masks on. And in particular, there's this main protagonist with this mask and the top hat. We've seen the top hat before. Uh, and uh, his, these very dark eyes. If you notice closely, you'll see they have each one has a red dot in them, this kind of, a bit like that advert that uh, the Conservative Party had of uh, Tony Blair, was it, with the red eyes, that kind of sinister sense of this person looking out at you. Uh, this apparently was a, a French judge who was very against free speech, so he's thrown in for good measure. And what Luke's done is he's uh, paired this work across the gallery, the West Gallery, uh, with this work by Leon Spilliard. Now, Spilliard, if uh, James Ensor is not particularly well known in the UK, uh, Leon Spilliard is even less well known. Um, he's uh, 20 years younger than um, Ensor, also from Ostend. He was self-taught, uh, and uh, he uh, was inspired to take up art by um, Ensor's work. Uh, he knew Ensor, uh, and so he was, as I said, he was self-taught. He didn't master oils, but painted mostly in watercolors and gouache and um, ink, Indian ink. Uh, and he did this, um, so this is an artist that Luke has introduced into the exhibition alongside himself, Gideon Beals and Ensor, obviously. Um, and this is a portrait of Carnegie. No one quite knows why he made this portrait. 
Carnegie dies in 1919, so he's still alive at this point, but it looks almost like a sort of death mask. And uh, likewise, you can see these very dark, almost empty eyes. Again, if you look closely, you'll see there is white in those eyes. But Spilliard's a very interesting artist. He uh, was plagued with a stomach condition, which meant he couldn't sleep. So he was an insomniac, and he used to walk the streets of Ostend at night. And most of his paintings are done in these very dark, kind of gloomy uh, interiors and exteriors. Uh, and those of you who know Luke's work will probably be able to see that there's a very strong connection between Spilliard's work and Ensor's own, uh, and Luke's work. And um, whereas Luke was not directly influenced uh, by Ensor, he certainly was by Spilliard, and I'm sure he would admit as much. So he's another kind of artist that we've brought in. And I think one of the things that we were talking about was the sense that we've spoken about Ostend having this kind of dual personality as a city or a town. And actually, en uh, Ensor and um, Spilliard make rather nice bookends to that kind of um, analogy in that one is very nocturnal, introspective, where the other is very kind of... Uh, more about light. Ensor was obsessed by light and capturing light in his painting. So much more about the day and about much less introspective, actually completely projecting himself as a rather celebrated figure rather than trying to understand himself more. So one of the things that Ensor did also was a number of satirical um, works. Um, and these are, um, and, and I'll just show you the next slide just so you can see that he also um, was not averse to kind of making etching versions or prints of his paintings. And you'll see that the subject's obviously inverted because he's copying it onto the plate um, from the painting. Um, and that's an example of him hand coloring a, an etching as well, by the way. Um, but uh, yes, he liked satirical um, works and did a number of these, influenced by Gilroy uh, and... Um, Cruikshank, uh, Hogarth to a certain extent, and Daumier as well. I mean, he was certainly looking at lots of other artists, English artists and French um, to boot. Um, and this is rather a comical um, scene. He did a number of paintings which were kind of lambasting the professional middle classes in Belgium. Again, this kind of anxiety about the proletarian and kind of bourgeois argument. Um, and one of the things that's also come to light um, is that Ensor himself had a tapeworm uh, which he describes in some detail having to kind of pass or somehow expunge from his body. Uh, and so there is some ambiguity about whether this is actually a tapeworm or the intestines of this poor person uh, lying on the bed here. Certainly those look like intestines. Um, and what we've got here is this rather wonderful scene where the, the patient is throwing up his hands in agony, clearly, because the uh, surgeons are also equally alarmed by the arrival of these two lawyers who are arriving with serve a writ, um, presumably against the doctors themselves. One of them who looks surprisingly like Peter Lorre, I think, for those of you who remember Peter Lorre, um, is trying to whisk one of the writs out of the pocket of this uh, individual. There are others on the floor lying here with what is either the tapeworm or the guts with the various tools of office. And meanwhile, death is kind of having a wonderful time and is about to make uh, a visit. Um, so these, he does this with the judges, he does this with the military, he does this with the royal family. He's kind of lampooning um, the uh, goings-on. And uh, this is another example. This is a very small painting we saw in that picture of his attic. I don't have to... Um, uh, this um, is the dried herring, pickled herring, which is called herring sour, which apparently, if you pronounce it with a Flemish or Ostend dialect, sounds like ensor art. So he's presenting himself as the pickled herring that's been fought over by these uh, figures of the establishment. Uh, this one clearly looks like a soldier. This one is slightly ambiguous, but um, this is kind of uh, how he saw himself, as a victim of the hierarchy of the establishment um, and unjustly treated. So he's literally being savaged, pulled apart here, fought over, um, but not to his own benefit, clearly. And nothing perhaps uh, says it better than this painting um, in which he's being served up, actually, as a dish of food um, it says Art Ensor there, just in case you didn't uh, know it was him. Uh, he has the body of a herring, 
Um, there's some nice pieces of lemon on there. There's this, these are all named artists. I can't remember all of them off the top, top of my head. Uh, this one has lobster claws. This one has been turned into a little pig. This one is obviously some sort of fowl with uh, laying an egg. Um, and what's happening here is we have these two characters. Uh, this is Gustav Maus, um, who was a lawyer, and his uh, fellow um, lawyer, I can't remember his name, I'm afraid to tell you, uh, who are, these were the people who ran the Society of 20. Remember we spoke about them and how Ensor was a member of this group. Uh, they were lawyers, so they were, in, in, obviously in Ensor's eyes, not particularly sympathetic to the plight of artists. Um, and they're serving their artists up, cooking them as dishes, and serving them up to this group of art critics sitting next door. And this is Verhalen, who is a, a poet and an art critic, also a member of the society, a non-artistic member. And uh, the diet is either so rich or so utterly horrible that two of the critics are vomiting onto the table. Uh, and these are all, all these characters are completely recognizable by these portraits. So here we have the artist being served up for the delectation of other people and at their own expense, as you can see. Uh, he wasn't short of um, you know, re responding to his critics. He did, however, um, and this is his most famous etching, uh, surrounded by evil spirits, to give you some sense of how he probably saw himself in the world he occupied. Uh, this is an exhibition poster proof uh, from the V&A here in London. Um, and it was for an exhibition in France, hence the cock uh, or cockerel. And I, I do still think there is a striking resemblance to Charles Saatchi in this uh, image here. <laughs> Perhaps he's modelled himself on that, I don't know. But um, later in life, he did find fame and fortune. Uh, after 1900, uh, things turned around for him. He started selling his work, though he was uh, a number of patrons, particularly in Antwerp, but not exclusively. Mostly women, strangely enough. Uh, but the Frank uh, family in particular bought a lot of his paintings, which ended up in Antwerp. Um, and he um, was making money. He also got a knighthood from the, um, uh, from the king and later was made a baron. In fact, in 1929, he was made a baron. And in order to become a baron, he had to relinquish his English citizenship, which was what he did. He was 69. It was, only 69, it was only when he was 69 that he became a Belgian citizen, interesting enough. So from being this kind of um, young, maverick, anti-establishment artist, he then becomes part of the establishment. Um, oh, that's the last slide, sorry. Um, sorry, I can't get that back now. But um, he um, also uh, met... Albert Einstein, when Einstein was on his way to America in 1933, um, traveling through um, Belgium, and he was staying in a little town not far from Ostend, and it was agreed that they would have lunch together and that Ensel would address um, a dinner later that day. And apparently when they were walking down the beach, obviously Ensel was completely kind of unable to grasp any of Einstein's theories or understand anything he was talking about, really. Um, but Einstein said, uh, so what do, you, what do you do? And he said, uh, well, I paint. And uh, Einstein said, well, what do you paint? And he said, nothing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.